Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Despite my bumbling pre-show introduction, this is episode 260. We're recording this episode live, you bet we are, on October 6th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I am joined across the sea, over the internet, by Mr. Barry Kirby. Barry, how are you tonight? I'm great, and hopefully we'll get this show done in good style. I hope we do. We got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about how drivers could soon get alerts from nearby pedestrians' phones, and later we're going to answer some questions from the community about ideas on how to reduce meeting overload, research repository development questions, and resources for shy or introverted folks like uh, like myself. Uh, believe it or not, you know, I, I am pretty introverted here. Uh, so, But first, we have a, a ton of community updates that we got to go over for you. Hey, if you're anywhere near the Human Factors sphere, next week, there's a little conference called HFES, Human Factors and Ergonomic Society. We are going to be there. I'm going to be there in person. Barry's going to be supporting from overseas. Uh, we're going to plan to start this live stream around 8 a.m. Eastern, and we're just going to go. I'm not going to give any sort of promises for length or duration. Um, I think our, and I'll tell you our initial goal was something like 12 hours. It's going to be a long live stream. We got a ton of guests. We actually got nine confirmed guests covering some topics all the way from affinity group spotlights at HFES. We got task forces that people have been working on. Uh, but then we also got some really interesting topics from the field in general. So we got VR for process control, automation talks, general artificial intelligence, managing teams, you name it. HFES leadership will be there too. It's going to be a really great time. We have a lot of guests lined up. Uh, it's going to it's gonna give me echoes of 2018 when we just had like nonstop. We had like 20 interviews that year. Uh, and, and in addition to that, we have one really exciting announcement from us here at Human Factors Castle. We've been cooking up and teasing for months. We will announce that on the live stream. Uh, if you'll be there in person, uh, stop by the booth for some podcast swag. We'd love to meet some of y'all uh, in person. Uh, come find me at the conference. I'll be there. I'll give you stickers and, and do all that fun stuff. Uh, at the end of our live stream, we're going to cap it off with a live show like we normally do, but it's going to round out the conference coverage. We're going to be talking about all things HFES annual meeting. Uh, so so that will be an interesting week. Hopefully we're not going to encounter any live stream issues. It's all going to be gravy train. No issues there, right? Right, right. Positive vibes out in the world. Uh, but in addition to that, Barry, we got some stuff going on over at 1202. What's the latest? So over at 12.02, we've been talking around the Dirty Dozen, which has been an interview that Michael Bates did with Gordon DuPont. But upcoming on Monday, so just prior to our live stream, um, is an interview with Dr. Uh, Marcin Nazarak, who's talking about proactive learning. So it's a new approach to safety analysis, uh, one that he's championing and has had some great success with. So that's really well worth listening to. It goes live on Monday. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that one, uh, although I don't know if I'll be able to listen to it next week. My next week is pretty packed. We got a pretty packed calendar there. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Mean. Well, hey, I know why you're all here. You're here to hear about the news. So why don't we get into it? That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news as selected by our patrons and listeners on social media. Barry, what is the story this week? It's a cool one. 
It is, and well done to the patrons for uh, selecting it. Ford drivers could get alerts from nearby pedestrians' phones. So Ford is working on a mobile app designed to alert drivers to pedestrians and uh, to cyclists nearby. The app uses Bluetooth Low Energy, or better known as BLE, to send a location alert from a pedestrian's or a cyclist's smartphone to passing Ford vehicles equipped with the latest infotainment system. The system then calculates potential crash risks, providing screens and audio, uh, screens and audio alerts. The technology has other potential uses, including detecting construction zones, construction workers, according to Ford. The function is intended to complement, not really replace, its Copilot 360 Advanced Driver Assistance System. The safety package includes features such as automatic lane keeping and blind spot assistance. And I can verify that that stuff works. Instead of relying upon the cameras or the radar which are on board the vehicle already, they can only really detect people and objects in the line of sight. This BLE or Bluetooth Low Energy uses radio waves to sense behind buildings and other obstructions. This technology is already widely available in smartphones which typically must pair with other devices in order to communicate. Ford has said that its application can communicate with multiple similarly equipped devices within range without pairing with them. So, Nick, what are your thoughts on basically my car hijacking your phone and turning it into a sensor? You know, if uh, if it's going to keep me safe, I'm all for it. Like, here's the thing. Uh, there's obviously a lot of safety and um, security concerns with something like this. And we can talk through some of those. My initial thoughts is if we can use existing signals and technology uh, out there in the world that will help identify um, people and protect them, just basic passively almost, I guess, then uh, I'm all for it. Barry, what, what are you thinking? So for me, this is that Internet of Things or IoT Nirvana. Um, all the different types of technology working together to provide an augmented sensor picture. Um, and from that perspective, I love it. And also it's going to come into a Ford, which I own. So that's brilliant. And being somebody who drives a Ford, their their latest, um, um, what what did they call it? The Copilot 360 is something that I use already um, and have used it for the past few weeks. And I'm quite a fan of that. So if this is going to augment that, then that's brilliant. However, whilst I'm quite enthusiastic, I need to temper that a little bit with, we've got to think about some of the social conscience here. There's some, I think there's some ethical, societal and privacy issues that we should probably dig into. So, but as usual, I think we should go and look at the breadth of human factors um, elements here in, into this. So where would you like to begin? Well, I think the first thing that I would like to talk about, because I think, uh, you know, help help us paint a picture of what this Copilot 360 driver assistance system looks like in practice today. You have a Ford, you drive one, you know what this looks like, uh, and you're happy with it. What, what, is it. what does it look like today? And then maybe we can add on to that. That's cool. Um, and I'm pleased you mentioned that, because obviously I haven't mentioned about my new car, car very much, so that, that's no. great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have a new car, you say. Dude, and it's, uh, it's brilliant. It's a Ford? Oh, okay, great. Ford. Um, <laughs> so it's a Mustang as well. Did I mention that? Um, so when Can they just at... send us a free Mustang? Because like we mentioned it enough on the show. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> the So the Copilot 360 feature is really interesting. That on your... So the, the Mustang has two screens. It's got one that is right in front of you, and then it's got the, the you know the, the, the equivalent of the, the big tablet screen in the middle. And 
it has a lane assist system, so it it has a um, it it senses the edges of the road or the edges of your lane um, that you have. It's also got um, a radar sensor out in front, so you can tell whether there's something in front of you. So when it senses where the edges of the lane are, you've got a di little uh, diagram in front of you of your car, and with two basically grey lane symbols, so a grey lane symbol on either side. When they go green. That means that it understands that, there, that you're in a lane and it recognizes that the lane is there. At that point, if you press cruise control and you switch your, on your cruise control, it will also keep in with, with lane keeping. That means you could actually take your, if you wanted to take your hands off, off the wheel and it will keep you in your lane. Um, it also has, like I said, the, the front sensor. So it recognizes when there's a vehicle in front of you. So if you set your cruise control to, I don't know, 70 mile an hour, like we would on, on a UK motorway, um, if the car pulls out in front of you, it will then reduce your speed to make sure that you are always a set distance away from the car in front. So even though you've got your speed set at 70, it will keep you drop you down to 50. Then, then it gets a bit cleverer than that. So if it detects that there's something that you can potentially uh, collide into, it has pre-collision alert, which I found out about the other day, um, when it comes up with a bit more of a, um, a, a more a more of alert ding. Uh, more of a alerting sound, and it comes up with this nice red, uh, big red flashy thing that says pre-alert collision of um, uh, warning. I'm like, well, I'm not going to look down at that and recite all that by the time I get it. But apparently, and I, I haven't tested this, um, that if you get to a point where it's a, where the, the car recognizes that you haven't taken any action, um, it will take the action for you. And that will either be braking or swerving to avoid. And so I haven't done that yet. I haven't, I haven't been in that situation. And I don't really want, I don't know how to test it. So that that's a, um, an aside. So in short, I mean, there are a couple of other elements around it, but fundamentally it recognizes where you're at in the road, sort of uh, width-wise, so it keeps you in your lane. It recognizes that there's cars in front of you. And then also obviously when you're reversing and stuff, it's got the, it's got the cameras all around. You can have 360 camera uh, view um, and things like that, which... Um, having learning to reverse uh, without looking through your back window is a bit of a novelty. Um, and oh, and the other final cool thing it does is in this 360 camera view, which I think probably other cars do it already, but it places your, it takes the camera, oh, yeah. takes That's the pictures neat. from either side and front and back and gives you what looks like almost a satellite view of you reversing. Yeah, it's an augmented side view, which which is just, that blows my mind. It's brilliant. Um, and really, really useful for like getting park, car park spaces. And and I was I stayed at um, a hotel last week where the car park space was really, really, really tight. And I was like, if I didn't have all these systems, like, there was no way I would have parked there. It was excellent. So that is what car, uh, Copilot 360 um, does so, in a nutshell. So all that um, to 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 recap, it's it's a pictograph of what is going on visually around your vehicle at any given time, right? Either the lanes, the car ahead of you, uh, that spatial awareness of, you know, when you're in a parking lot backing up, that type of thing, right? And so when we when we look at this story and we think about how this uh, type of thing is going to be implemented, for me, this is the big question is how is this going to be displayed to the drivers? How is it going to be communicated that there's a pedestrian nearby? If there's multiple pedestrians, how does it, uh, combine or distinguish between those signals? How does it communicate that there's multiple pedestrians traveling, you know, at a certain distance 
And if you're going through an intersection at a certain speed, I don't know, 30 miles per hour, I'm just saying an arbitrary number there. Mm -hmm. What is the distance uh, of Bluetooth BLE? What is that distance that it would activate or communicate with the vehicle? And then also, is that enough time for the driver to register and perceive that there are pedestrians just around the corner that they can't see, right? So there's a bunch of human factors issues that I see at a glance with all of this. Is it a good thing that we are going to ultimately include something like this in a vehicle? Absolutely. Uh, my concerns are range of Bluetooth and uh, also the um, the time in which it would take to communicate th those pedestrians nearby to a, a driver. You know, I think you're driving through a city street and you see a bunch of dots on there. Is it meaningful to you if you can't discern which direction they're traveling, if you can't discern, you know, sort of uh, which ones immediately impact you? And so uh, those are the types of issues that I think of first. What are the, some of the first things that you think of, Barry, when you think of human factors issues with this or human factors wins? Yeah, I mean, in, it's very easy, I think. And I certainly did this was like, well, more data is good data, isn't it? Um, I think, you know, anything that gives you that more information. But then having worked with what I would call secondary data in situational awareness, awareness displays in the past, it, there is a certain element there around how do we define the difference between primary data, so stuff that your platform, your car has sensed, therefore we know it's, be it's better or it's it's got less latency and things like that. So how does that, how do we need to differentiate between the two different types of data? Um, and really, I sort of started digging into just how useful will this data be? Because if you, if we talk about Bluetooth low energy, well, actually, the range of that is fairly restricted because it's low energy, um, and, it, and that's one of the reasons it was it was defined in the way that it is. And one of the things that the the article isn't exactly clear on exactly what data is going to be transferred. Is it is it using the the BLE as a sensor in in of itself in order to work out what is going around it, or is it simply just um, passing data back that says this person with well or this device? So you're making the assumption that somebody's carrying the phone. That is then being passed to the car to say there is somebody with this app five meters away from you. Um, and if you're traveling, and I'll take take your arbitrary figure of a, of, of thirty again. If you're traveling at thirty mile an hour, by the time that's traveled over there, is is that risk already passed? Is it? And it, you know, it, by the time it's it's sensed to you, because um, really, the, when this is going to be used, you're looking at somebody crossing the road. You're looking at somebody who is maybe going to cause an incursion into into your driving space. Um, how is that going to work? So. I guess the other side of it as well is I get I sort of had to take a take a big approach because having said that I, I love my Ford, the Ford app, um, so you can have an app which I can switch my I can turn my car on and off in, I can see its its charge, um, and all that sort of stuff. That's great. But the app isn't that isn't brilliant. Um I've seen better apps. But even if um even if the app was brilliant. If I on a Ford, I'm going to download a Ford app. That's kind of a given. And therefore, I'd have it running on, on my machine. That That's on my, my device. If you don't own a Ford, then why on earth would you download a Ford app to help only Ford drivers? Um, that just doesn't seem sensible or indeed going to work. Therefore, I think 
I, I would hope um, that actually what Ford are doing are talking with uh, talking about the development of a generic app or even better, a service built into the operating system of the phone that shares data in such a way that any from um, uh, car manufacturer who is de- developing these sort of devices can pick that up. That is the only way that you're going to get social buy-in um, into this because if you then, if we jump onto the, that, the safety element of it, the positive side of this gives you, yes, you know, you know where these people who are running this app. But what happens when somebody steps out who wasn't running the app, and therefore your, you know, could your um, your defence be, well, I didn't know they were there because my car didn't alert me because they didn't have the app running. Um, you know, that's not going to stand up in court. Um, it's not going to stand up on the on the on the the, the moral um, measure, is it? So there's almost the there's, there's that flip side of you know if if some people have got it you've only got a partial data data view um therefore is it actually any good um is it one of these things that you have to have 100% coverage in order to make it work i've jumped around a number of topics there so um i'm okay. going to shut up for a bit and let yes. you have a go yes i have a couple of clarifications that i'd like to make because i think um the way that this article is worded makes it a little bit confusing but the way that this app is working is that it is a phone app that is communicating with other passive Bluetooth signals, and it is sig- sending the information about those signals to the vehicle. So I don't think any pedestrian needs the Ford app to do this. I think the app is for the driver. It collects information based on the signals that the phone receives and sends it to the car. So the car then parses that data and plots it. Uh, I I know I had to, I had to double check Barry I I can see the confusion on your face um, because <laughs> because it would it wouldn't work otherwise right you're absolutely right if everybody had to download an app it just wouldn't be feasible so the thing with this is that um, you're right there's there's uh, there'd be that social buy-in if that was the issue I don't foresee that being the issue if um, if it's passively reading and and passively picking up now I do want to sort of follow up on a thought that I had earlier. I did some research while Barry was rambling uh, about, uh, sorry, I mean to hurt your feelings, Barry. I mean to hurt your feelings. Not rambling. You were constructively commenting on the the article here. No, but I want to talk about the range of Bluetooth uh, and specifically BLE. So um, estimates from from a phone-powered device, a a phone device, I guess, you're looking at a low end of about 80 meters, which is about 260 feet, uh, all the way up to about 100 meters, which in in U.S. is about uh, 300 plus feet, right? So so it's actually quite a long range when you think about it that way, and especially when it doesn't need to maintain a sustained signal. uh, This would be enough data for the phone to pick it up and say, oh, there's something that direction uh, based on the signal um, and, and you know, the, the rate at which it picks it up. So it can determine all that stuff, send it to the car. Now, I can see this being really beneficial in a city environment where, let's say, you have um, a cyclist coming up from behind you that you can't see, but Bluetooth is picking up and it's picking up their rate and you're about to make a right turn and it's on, oh, sorry, I'm here in the States, right? So we drive on the right side of the road and turn right. Uh, and so it's it's driving on my right, I'm going to turn right and it tells me, that, um, you know, there's somebody right behind me and I see this, you know, this little dot on my, uh, what, what was it? Auto Copilot 360 Advanced Awareness 
I see it coming up behind me and I say, oh, I'm not going to turn because I see, you know, there's or there's an alert that pops up that says, hey, cyclist coming in. Um, so I can see it for, you know, when, when you're stopped in an intersection, you're about to make a move and new information comes in. I can see that being very useful. Likewise, if let's say it's dark, somebody's dressed in all black about to cross the street, you can't see them because they're dressed in all black. Uh, then, you know, if they have a phone on them, you're going to see a little dot on your, you know, on your device that says, oh, hey, somebody's right here. And I, I don't, my eyes don't see anything, but the signals are telling me that somebody's right there. You take a second look. Oh, yes, there's somebody crossing the street. Um, it's very useful for those situations, I think, where you are uh, close to stationary. It's picking up all the information around you and relaying that information in that regard. Now, like I was saying, in a city environment where there's like lots of signals going on, even potentially from the buildings nearby, um, from the people sitting down at coffee shops on the corner, there's a lot of signals that can go into this. And so the thing that I'm wondering is how is this going to parse, display, uh, and and sort of uh, parse, consolidate, display all this information in a meaningful way to the driver that's going to be actionable, right? If, if they see all these dots on it, they're not going to be paying attention to it um, in the middle of a city environment. I just don't see that happening because it's information overload. How do you sort of reduce that information to be meaningful? Do you do the ones that only have velocity attached to them? Well, then, you know, what does that look like if, you know, you have a, a bunch of walking people? Does it show it as one sort of consolidated blob moving in, you know, uh, one direction and the size of the blob indicates how many signals it's getting from that direction? How does it consolidate that information? These are all user interface, usability issues that need to be thought out, that need to be thought through as it displays it to the driver. Because again, in a situation where you are going a hundred times faster than anybody walking or can, uh, you are making decisions in a faster pace than those people because they have more time to react uh, than you do if you're traveling at a faster pace. And so you need to be able to react faster. You need to be able to parse that data faster as a human. So these are some of the questions that I have. And we've focused a lot about, you know, sort of the usability aspects, the um, the UI, you know, is this a radar kind of display? Um, is it easily perceivable at a glance, those types of things? And, um, you know, the, the, the interesting piece to me is where, you know, like what happens if somebody's carrying multiple devices? Mm -hmm. Can it tell what those devices are? Uh, are there, you know, passive Bluetooth, like somebody has a speaker out there, you know, and they're just listening to stuff on the street corner. Does it show up as, you know, a, a dot? I don't know. Right. These are these are questions that I have. Is it only attached to velocity? I don't know. Um, and I don't know the right answer to them. I'm, I'm not an expert in this. Uh, I don't know, Barry. Where, I, I've, I've now I've rambled. Where do you want to go from here? You haven't rambled. You've you've thought and you've uh, <laughs> expressed. Yeah, we we good at this time. I think it's just because it's so interesting. Because if you had just a um, a Bluetooth transmitter, which is effectively what we're saying the saying the phone is, if that was just transmitting, saying it's there, then that's useless to the car because it cannot determine where it is um, and if it's got any velocity or or anything like that. So, I'm interested in in how that you know what data is actually transmitting or because and this is why we go back to the app and, and how they do it because if just because it's got bluetooth isn't going to be doesn't by default uh send out any gps data um and so for you to know where where this thing is 
Um, you either need to just know its ID and know, I guess you could, you don't have any direction finding on your vehicle is kind of what I'm getting to. You've got one receiver, which is your phone. And if you've got a Bluetooth device there, you don't know where that Bluetooth device is. It's deliberately um, not as intelligent as, as Wi-Fi and stuff like that, because it's made for, um, for this type of um, just low levels of passing data. So the, the Bluetooth will need to be able to receive some sort of lat long, um, some sort of um, location, location, which Not you can. I, I, I think it could derive that. I, I think it could derive that information, right? Because I mean, if if uh, if your phone has a velocity attached to it, you're in a car, you're moving, it then will detect the deltas between the signal strength, and just based on signal strength alone, you can tell how far away you are moving away from something or how close you are moving towards something. And, um, you know, beyond that, you are kind of limited on your path of a street. And so by that deduction, uh, it can also kind of calculate angles, right? Because your uh, direction, your velocity, um, your, uh, I guess, field of movement is restricted based on the street or hypothetically should be. And so it can almost interpolate where those positions are based on uh, just the differences in signal strength. That's, that's my low level layman's person understanding of of how they're calculating those uh those types of um that directional data right is is the algorithms that that make it i'm down with that i'm just trying to <laughs> look upon the um good old wikipedia to see um exactly what information is given because i'm not so you you, you can have um a level of proximity sensing um so we've done this before. We've done uh, with with eye beacons. Um, so again, using Bluetooth for, for that sort of thing. Um, but again, we couldn't work out where they were until you sighted them onto a onto a map ourselves, and we give them an ID and said, right, we've dropped this eye beacon here, which was a, a BLE device. Um, I'm not convinced that my phone would. I'm not even convinced it actually understands where, um, what, what, that it can actually derive what the strength of, of the Bluetooth signal it's receiving is. I need to do some research in this. It's fascinating. Yeah, uh, it really is, right? I mean, it, it's just opened up this big old uh, Pandora's box for us to like yeah. sit and sort through and be like, how does this really work from a technical perspective? But I mean, okay, let's just all put all that away, assuming that this works. From a technological technological perspective, let's talk about the human factors issues here, right? Because I think that's well, what people it's, want to hear. It's a big human factors issue if it doesn't work. You know, I think right. we need, I, I think we need to go and tell Ford that we don't think it can work. Oh, I don't think it can work. You think it, it can anyway. You're right. So if you're so you're let's assume that that so because some sort of data is going to have to be um, passed, and which as a minimum, it's got to have some sort of ID because you know what it is. Um, because each each um, Bluetooth uh, transmitter transmits an ID, that's how you know what where it's at. So that that leads us into privacy. And so let's get into some nice um, cultural ethical sort of issues here. So you everybody has a right to privacy, and so if you're there and and the 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 car or your your device recognizes that somebody's been there. Um, it, it obviously pulls in this data and will hopefully anonymize it on the display, but that data will sit in your phone in some sort of storage somewhere. Um, what happens if you're the, one of the people there was maybe where they shouldn't have been? 
um, and you've got a record of that. Now, that could be a good or a bad thing. Um, so one of the thoughts I had was actually if there's um, if there's been an accident or something, could we use this um, to help recreate accident data um, for accident reconstruction? Um, so then you can actually work out what that, you know, if you had that car, what was around it at any one point. You can actually, it's almost the equivalent of a bit of a black box, isn't it? That would be quite mm-hmm. neat. That would be. But then, then let's take the um, this thing a little bit further. Is if this is data that's just been transmitted, what happens if it's hacked? What happens if that data is actually not real, or the work? The flip side is true. The um, the transmitter that you think is is nicely protecting you and all that sort of stuff is actually, you know, switched off or something like that. That um, that, that we don't know what we can do with. So I think there's there's some of those. How is how do we ensure system safety? How do we ensure that the that it's robust enough to um, to to have enough confidence in to protect people? Um, but I think that again that could be part that, that having this idea of almost a, um, a black box reconstruction. I think that, that that's really neat. The the final bit I'll sort of chuck it this before I let you um, have a go again um, is if we're talking about the Bluetooth being used to talk between sort of pedestrians of vehicles, could this be used to talk between vehicle and vehicle? That's something that we um, have talked about quite on quite a few different different occasions. And it's, I think it's that Nirvana for, um, I use that word twice today, um, for, uh, for the IoT side of things, because if the car in front of you senses somebody on the um, crossing the road when they shouldn't do in front of you. Not only would it be useful for the, that car to know, but actually for that car, car to pass the information back to me um, if I'm behind it. So I, I recognize that they're probably going to break really sharply soon. So I can take evasive action quicker as well. Um, but only if it's a Ford. Only if it's a Ford. Uh, but then, you know, everyone buys Fords nowadays, don't they? So Because um, I've got one there for sure. Everyone's got one. Did I tell you I've got a new car? <laughs> <laughs> There's a clip for TikTok. All right. Um, actually, I said I was going to let you talk. I lied. The, the, the last thing that I think for me that, that this sort of brings out is uh, when we spoke spoken about them before in terms of standards, this just is crying out for being incorporated into the common standard, be that the um, the BLE standard, um, the Bluetooth uh, energy standard um, or whatever. But there is clearly something there around um, commonality of use. I'll let you talk. Yeah. Well, I just want to comment, you know, briefly on on some of the uh, the the standard stuff, right? We actually talked last week um, with Ram uh, from HFES about standards and standardizations. If you haven't checked it out, if you haven't checked out our town hall yet, go check that out. It's a great talk about standards and publications uh, within HFES. Uh, great talk. But I think standards. You're right. There's a there's a great opportunity there to, um, and we talked about standardizing the metaverse. Go check that out too. Uh, but yeah, there's. There's a great opportunity there. You're right. Because if if everyone's on board for the same thing, then we could almost make it a standard to transmit that uh, GPS data along. Uh, does that, you know, what kind of security uh, implications does that introduce? But that might be, you know, if it's for, um, you know, maybe only pass it along if it's connected to a, a an authorized app. And maybe the apps have to go through some authorization to get security uh, applied to it. I don't know. The next sort of bit of this that I'd like to go into is maybe talking about the usefulness that this has for certain populations and really those that are at risk uh, who who may not necessarily have the same perceptual abilities 
as most adults, right? So I'm, I'm thinking from the pedestrian side now, because yes, we've been talking a lot about the driver. This is going to benefit a whole other population. This is going to benefit the pedestrians too. If the drivers are able to detect where they're at and, and that intent behind uh, sort of where the, um, where the pedestrians are, then, then the pedestrians' lives are going to be, you know, uh, more protected than they would have otherwise. And so I'm thinking of other populations like children or aging populations who um, may find it difficult to detect cars on the road, especially as cars become more and more electric, they make less noise. And so if someone's hard of hearing, uh, the deaf community, you know, there's going to be um, a real issue with detecting vehicles on the road. There already is. And so thinking about how this might be able to impact them, Again, communicating that information to the driver is going to ultimately protect those on the road uh, and not necessarily the driver. And so I think it's a good thing uh, because, again, we will sort of protect children who maybe they don't have a phone on them, but they might have a tablet that mom and dad lets them play with or something along those lines um, that, you know, if they're going over to their friend's house or if they're on the bus, if they're getting off the bus from school, um, that's going to make those situations a lot, uh, a lot more safe, too. So that's that's another interesting bit. Um, the we've we've already talked a little bit about the UI, but understanding what information is presented to you, so the training piece of it, right? Um, we we really need to make sure that the people who are driving the uh, the vehicles don't need training or very little training to use this thing because it can save lives. It can save those populations that I just brought up. Um, and it, the additional thing is that, you know, if there's an alert, that needs to be intuitive as well. Basically training needs to be, <laughs> training is not a patch for this. It needs to not exist for something like this. It needs to be very intuitive to use. Um, I've, I've talked now enough, Barry. I, I want to throw it back over to you one more time. Do you have any other closing thoughts on this article, this technology, what can be done with it? I think it's, it is one of these things. I think it's exciting. I think it's something that's going to be quite cool. I think there's potential for you know, the law of unintended consequence um, to rear its head, which we need to work through. Like some really random things, like if we encourage, I mean, a lot of people have Bluetooth on all the time already, um, but if we're actually doing a bit more Bluetooth interrogation, what what impact does that have on the uh, the battery life of, of your phone? Um, and if we're passing data, if we're deriving data and passing for it, um, that actually might ha might be happening, happening anon anonymously, um, who's paying for that? Um, are we expecting, you know, just normal people just walking down the road to be almost paying for the service that I'm getting as a as a Ford driver? Um, but I think for me, it's it's a really good start. I'm quite excited to see how this develops. Yeah, I agree. The last thing I'll I'll add is that the I, I said it snarkily. The only if you're a Ford driver will it alert the next car down. But I think that is one place where standards could make a huge difference is that if everybody is using this system, you must communicate something like that to the car behind you, regardless of make and model, uh, if, if it's going to save lives, if it's going to prevent damage, destruction, lives being lost. I think that's an incredibly important thing. Um, and, and I said it snarkily because uh, Ford, in their best interest, um, you know, as much as you love them, 
their interest is to make Ford cars look good in comparison to other cars so that more people will buy those cars. And if Ford cars can communicate with each other and prevent those accidents, then that's going to make them look better. Um, you know, it's the same thing with Tesla. It's the same thing with Honda. It's the same thing with whatever car manufacturer you want to go with. Uh, that is what's going on there. All right. I think that's enough. Uh, that Thank you so much to our patrons this week for selecting that topic. And uh, thank you to our friends over at TechCrunch for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles in our weekly roundups in our blog. And also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and more. We'll see if we get a weekly roundup next week. It'll be a Tuesday when I'm at conference. So we'll see. We'll see. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you. As always, to our patrons, we especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you truly keep the show going. Uh, your contributions not only help us, but also help, did you know we have a lab? Here, here's uh, that, that was a smooth transition, right? Did you know that we have a lab? Um, no, we, we do have a Human Factors cast digital media lab. We're highly focused on communicating human factors, topics, concepts, information to everybody, not just human factors individuals, but folks who may be human factors adjacent like UX or uh, even just the layman, right? We're really interested in communicating human factors effectively. We do have a lot of exciting projects in development over at the lab. In fact, one of them we're going to announce next week at HFES. We're super excited about it. We've been working on it for a very long time. Um, so if you want to get involved, if you want to get some work experience, if you want to hang out with myself and Barry and a bunch of other enthusiastic, not only listeners, we have people who are in the lab who don't even listen to the show. They're from different domains entirely. Uh, if you want to get involved, work with some industry tools, um, get some skills, reach out to us on any of our social platforms. We have a lab website, kind of hfcdml.com. You can go there, visit our official website. Uh, seriously, there's a couple different ways that you can get in touch with us. Uh, any one of them is effective. We're always welcoming new people to the lab. Anyway, that's that's just a little bump that we like to do from time to time just to let people know because... Uh, <laughs> These little bumps, we've actually gotten people to join the lab because of them. And I think one of them is in chat tonight. Hi, Alex. All right. Well, let's get into this next part of the show. We just like to call. It came from. It came from. Oh, that's right. It's uh, it's it came from. It's the part of the show where we search all over the community to bring you topics that uh, the community is talking about it's the internet to bring the community topics anyway if you find these answers useful wherever you're watching listening uh absorbing uh osmosing uh just give us a like to help other people find this type of thing uh we got three tonight the first one here is from the user experience subreddit this is by user experience guy well that's fitting 
Uh, this, <laughs> they write ideas on how to reduce meeting overload. They write, I'm working at a big company. The staff is mostly remote. Bosses are running sprints every week, requiring presentation, solution, research, validation. On top of that, there are cross-functional meetings with PMs, devs, accessibility, as well as other design teams. The staff has little time to work, little heads down time, that is. Uh, now the bosses are asking for solutions. Note, the design maturity of the company is low. Big fights between PMs and designers. Last-minute requests. Uh, it was This process was created to reduce friction. So basically, the question is, what... Uh, what do you do to reduce some of this meeting overload? There's a lot going on. Barry, what, what strategies have worked for you? So this, this is quite simple. It actually makes me quite cross, I think, because it, it feels very much like a, a large company has said, let's do Agile because Agile is the new sexy thing in the market and we must do it. And so they've sent somebody on on a couple of agile courses, and then they've said, "Right, let's do it. Let's let's make that happen." And and then I, then some big bosses turned around and said, "Oh, actually, I also want to have this cross functional. I want oversight on what's going on, and I want to have all my PMs. I want to talk to all my devs today. I want to talk to all blah 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 blah." And so they're trying to so so they're not doing agile. They're doing um, waterfall, but, but putting agile that you're throwing the word sprint in here and there. So fundamentally. They need a sprint leader, a sprint leader who is due to do their job properly. The whole point of a sprint lead is the, they're, they're a servant leader. They get rid of all the rubbish. They deflect um, and let the team get on with their job. If the team's been set up right, then they shouldn't need to be worried about bosses coming and asking for updates and all this sort of stuff. That's the lead, that, that is the job of the sprint lead, is to make sure that they deflect all of that stuff off. This isn't agile. This is so far from agile it's 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 unreal it's worse than not doing it at all um so my argument would be fire the lot of them and start again um okay slightly more seriously but no and some people need to step up and and say that either um if they want to do agile by using sprints and things like that crack on but do it properly or don't um I, just because agile is popular doesn't necessarily mean it's the right solution for a lot of large companies they just can't deal with it they, they can't work with it um go back to what go back to what you want to do this is this sounds very much more matrix uh matrix matrix with waterfall projects if that if that's really what works for you as an organization go back to doing that but do it properly don't mess around with agile that sounded yeah. a bit electric. sorry yeah well i mean it's tricky because <clears throat> there's agile methodology but what if you don't do agile like what if what if your company just does not do agile and there's all these meetings uh you know in a software development environment where you're still you still have all these players but you're not agile and i'm wondering how that might happen um you know for me i, I spend an unhealthy amount of time on emails agonizing over every word sending <laughs> but that's because i want to avoid those meetings and i want to sort of make sure that i have the time to um be heads down or have the freedom to work when i want right and so i think that's um, that's another thing too, is if you're, if you're bogged down with these meetings, then you are at the mercy of when other people set them. And, you know, thankfully I work with a team that is very understanding and very flexible, uh, and really, um, you know, prioritizes meetings only when they're necessary. And I think the mindset, it's, it's really difficult to change culture, but I think that there's a culture change that needs to happen here. I think the, 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 um, the, the default should be async, uh, asynchronous by default, and and synchronous when absolutely necessary. 
Um, and it sounds like it's almost the other way around synchronous by default and asynchronous, um, you know, after that. So really it's just changing mindsets, um, and saying, you know, Hey, uh, it's, it's the pushback piece to, Hey, my time is, is being taken up by all these meetings. Is there any way that this could be accomplished by an email? And, um, you know, that goes a long way. Uh, people, people don't feel great about wasting other people's time or monopolizing people's time. Uh, you know, as much as you might think otherwise, I think, um, you know, if you communicate that work's not getting done because spending all the time in meetings, they'll be more, more willing to, uh, uh, pull back on some that are unnecessary. Uh, it's tricky here because of the stage in which they're in, but I don't know. That's, that's my advice. Two cents. Let's get into this next one here, uh, by whiskers 9101 on the UX research subreddit. They talk about research repository development. Hello all. I am currently the only UX researcher at my company, and I'm looking to consolidate my information in a research repository. Apart from dedicated projects, uh, products, uh, what have other people done to store and organize their information? My company uses Jira Microsoft products, by the way. Thank you. Uh, Barry, how do you organize information? I feel like we talked about this one before, um, but generally, how do you organize your research? Um, yes, we have done oh, a, a similar-ish question like this before. Um, if you're using Microsoft products, then SharePoint is is very, very useful. It can be um, set up in such a way that you, because I, I use it, I set up um, set, separate project sites. So SharePoint site per project with the team's uh, buy-in. And then I also have a central repository for you know, research information, so stuff that isn't necessarily sort of with a project, but is a really good reference. Or when a project is finished, and I want to make sure that all the references we've used go into a central repository um, that we can then tag. And the thing that SharePoint does well is uh, meta metadata on stuff, so you can put it in and you can add, add all your tags and things like that. So, but it's not the only tool out there. You've you know the the questions already named a couple, um, but if you've got um, SharePoint already there then actually it's quite a powerful tool you, the, the company will get for free because it's already in with what you've got. Um, Jira, again, Jira sort of used more for the for the management side of things rather than the um, um, actual research data, but um, different people use it in different ways. Um, yeah, I'd be down to SharePoint site or a team site. Obviously, te Teams is backed on, off onto SharePoint anyway. Yeah, I, I, I tend to advocate for use the tool that... Uh, everyone else is using to um, to kind of communicate that stuff because, uh, like, if your if your if your product development team is using Jira, then then use Jira to um, to communicate because then you're going to have less friction between those teams as you try to show them like here's a research finding in a, in a Jira ticket and well. It, you can attach that to the development of a UI element or the development of a of a thing in the workflow. So that's that's kind of where I default to is use the tools that everybody else is. So that way, there's less friction with communication of things between teams, uh, and communication is really important, obviously. So, um, but I, you know, if you're the only person at a company um, that is doing research, then you might look into just making a spreadsheet to start, and until you find. A, tool that's useful for you spreadsheets can do a lot um and uh that you know look look into that uh all right we got one more here facilitation resources 
for shy or introverted folks. This is by user ZapAlign on the user experience subreddit. That's it. Uh, facilitation resources for shy and introverted folks. Barry, for, for people who are shy or introverted, how do you um, sort of, uh, what, what resources are available? So there, for me, there's only one resource um, that you need to be aware of, and that is a good facilitator. Um, if you've got a good facilitator in in the, uh, doing or you're being that facilitator, it's about empowering people. You can have a whole group of people there that um, you'll always say almost every group I ever work with, you've always got the loud one. You've always got the one that's maybe like checking the phone. You've got the one who's nose down into writing stuff down, writing all them sort of notes. And you've always got the one person who's, or maybe more, um, whatever, who is, you can tell that the, the, the one to say something, but then the loud person is always shouting up or the, the other person is, you know, they, they never get, get that space. And it is up to you as a facilitator to look around the group, see if anybody's in that situation and empower people, turn around and say, um, I haven't heard, you know, have you got something to contribute or um, are you trying to say something? You know, not picking on them by any stretch because that, again, will just make them, um, make them more intro introverted, but give them the ability, give them the affordance of being able to speak up. Um, if you can make that happen, then that's brilliant. And if you're the introverted one, um, because again, I, in them, so, certainly in new groups and stuff, I'm down with that. I can be very, very introverted. I don't like shouting up into um, into a room un unless I feel empowered to do so. Um, if you see somebody else struggling, um, you know exactly how they feel. So feel free for you to shout up and say, oh, we haven't heard from Mary or Bob or whoever. Um, become a an ally to them and and then they might do the same back for you as well so uh, go team introverted um but it's it's about empower empowerment nick what do you think yeah i mean i i i struggle with this because i'm i'm thinking about it from the perspective of actually talking with users right like what do you do if you are um shy and introverted but you're expected to get user data or interact with other users, right? You're a researcher and re researchers can kind of be um, <laughs> introverted. You know, they look at data all day. And so how do you, how do you sort of combat that and reach out and get that feedback from people uh, in a facilitation role? So you start a podcast because it helps you with the extroverted stuff. <laughs> no, uh, but <laughs> that come in. in a way, in a way, um, I think one strategy that I've done that has worked asterisk for me is to put myself in situations where I am forced to do a thing um, because as a researcher, you research a thing on how to do it before you do it and you prep for it. And so when you put yourself out there and do something that you're um, maybe uncomfortable with or commit to it, then you are kind of forcing yourself to do the work, to be prepared. And that preparation, going in prepared, feels really good because then you know exactly how to approach a situation. Um, you know, uh, whenever, um, basically, whenever you approach a situation, you know kind of what to expect. And even in the unexpected situations, you kind of have a, a fallback, right? So that's kind of the best advice I got is prep um, or and, and commit to those situations. All right. We've done the It Came From. Now it's just time for the part of the show we like to simply call One More Thing. Um, Barry, what's your One More Thing this week? 
So my one more thing, I mentioned a few weeks ago that um, our eldest daughter went off to university. We sent her off into the big wide world. Well, she's coming back this weekend. Um, she's realized that there's only so much alcohol you can drink. And um, or at least you purchase, she's going to come back and steal some of ours. But no, we're very excited to, to hopefully have her come back tomorrow. So it's it's been a really interesting almost journey for us to have, um, you know, into this next stage of our, all of our lives, really. Um, and yeah, it's going to be quite excited to see you tomorrow. Well, I'm really happy for you that you get to see family. Um, I for, for me, my one more thing this week is uh, I woke up Saturday morning, last Saturday morning, and um, opened my phone. And none of the things that I wanted were where I wanted them. Um, I have a launcher on my Android that uh, I really liked. And the latest update bricked it to bricked the launcher to where it didn't pull in any of my preferences. And so everything that I was looking for um was not there and so i had to switch to the default uh the default launcher and slowly rebuild where i had everything it's really annoying because i'm still rebuilding it and i don't have the same same level of customization that i did with the other update i'm just scared that the other update will you know brick it again and so i'm i've switched over to the default uh launcher on the android system it's fine it's just like uh it, it takes some getting used to i think i'm almost there to where i'm um I've got the essentials, right? There's still a couple that are annoying. Like I made shortcuts to websites like that don't have apps for them or whatever. And I got to recreate all those. And I don't remember because I didn't take screenshots because I wasn't expecting it. It's just an annoying process. All right. Anything else, Barry? No, actually, an interesting thing on that is there's a lot more people producing web apps nowadays. So you do need to be able to do the whole linkage to um, a web page more so than mm -hmm. you used to so yeah i can see how that would be annoying yeah very annoying well that's it for today everyone if you uh enjoy the discussion about our topic today why don't you go listen to uh episode 258 where we talk about touchscreens in cars that's and you can hear a little bit more about barry's new ride uh there have you have you heard he has a new ride uh comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion you can always join us on our discord community we have one of those Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, uh, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can leave us a five-star review. Two, you can tell your friends about us. That it continues to be the best way that people find the show. Uh, or three, if you have the financial means to and you want to support the show that way, consider supporting us on Patreon. We do give back to you over there as well. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about your new ride and what to expect with Bluetooth uh, signals coming into your phone? So you can find me on social media at Baz underscore K, or if you want to listen to some of the, um, the interviews that we've been up to around the Human Factors community, then find me on 1202 Human Factors Podcast, which is 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me in Atlanta, Georgia next week for HFES and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. We will see you next week for Human Factors and Ergonomic Society. I am so excited. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next week, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. 
They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.